Chapter 12 of Annie Besant by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Still Fighting All this hot fighting on the religious field did not render me blind to the misery of the Irish land so dear to my heart, writhing in the cruel grip of Mr. Forster's Coercion Act. An article, Coercion in Ireland and Its Results, exposing the wrongs done under the Act, was reprinted as a pamphlet and had a wide circulation. I pleaded against eviction. 7,020 persons had been evicted during the quarter ending in March, for the trial of those imprisoned on suspicion, for indemnity for those who before the Land Act had striven against wrongs the Land Act had been carried to prevent, and I urged that no chance is given for the healing measures to cure the sorrow of Irish disaffection until not only are the prisoners in Ireland set at liberty, but until the brave, unfortunate Michael David stands once more a free man on Irish soil. At last the government reconsidered its policy and resolved on juster dealings. It sent Lord Frederick Cavendish over to Ireland, carrying with him the release of the suspects, and scarcely had he landed ere the knife of assassination struck him, a foul and cowardly murder of an innocent messenger of peace. I was at Blackburn to lecture on the Irish question, and as I was walking towards the platform, my heart full of joy for the dawning hope of peace, a telegram announcing the assassination was placed in my hands. Never shall I forget the shock, the incredulous horror, the wave of despair. It is not only two men they have killed, I wrote, a day or two later. They have stabbed the new-born hope of friendship between two countries, and have reopened the gulf of hatred that was just beginning to close. Alas, the crime succeeded in its object, and hurried the government into new wrong. Hastily a new coercion bill was brought in, and rushed through its stages in Parliament, and facing the storm of public excitement, I pleaded still, force no remedy, despite the hardship of the task. There is excessive difficulty in dealing with the Irish difficulty at the present moment. Tories are howling for revenge on a whole nation as an answer to the crime committed by a few. Whigs are swelling the outcry. Many radicals are swept away by the current, and feeling that something must be done, they endorse the government action, forgetting to ask whether the something proposed is the wisest thing. A few stand firm, but they are very few, too few to prevent the new coercion bill from passing into law. But few though we be who lift up the voice of protest against the wrong which we are powerless to prevent, we may yet do much to make the new act of brief duration by so rousing public opinion as to bring about its early repeal. When the measure is understood by the public, half the battle will be won. It is accepted at the moment from faith in the government. It will be rejected when its true character is grasped. The murders which have given birth to this repressive measure came with a shock upon the country, which was the more terrible from the sudden change from gladness and hope to darkness and despair. The new policy was welcomed so joyfully, the messenger of the new policy was slain ere yet the pen was dry which had signed the orders of mercy and of liberty. Small wonder that cry of horror should be followed by measures of vengeance. But the murders were the work of a few criminals, whilst the measure of vengeance strikes the whole of the Irish people. I plead against the panic which confounds political agitation and political redressal of wrong with crime and its punishment. The government measure gags every mouth in Ireland, and puts, as we shall see, all political effort at the mercy of the Lord Lieutenant, the Magistracy, and the police. I then sketched the misery of the peasants in the grip of absentee landlords, 
the turning out on the roadside to die of the mother with newborn babe at her breast, the loss of all thought of the sanctity of human life when the lives of the dearest are reckoned as less worth than the shillings of overdue rack rental. I analyzed the new act. When this act passes, trial by jury, right of public meeting, liberty of press, sanctity of house, will one and all be held at the will of the Lord Lieutenant, the irresponsible autocrat of Ireland, while liberty of person will lie at the mercy of every constable. Such is England's way of governing Ireland in the year 1882, and this is supposed to be a bill for the repression of crime. Bluntly I put the bald truth. The plain fact is that the murderers have succeeded. They saw in the new policy the reconciliation of England and Ireland. They knew that friendship would follow justice and that the two countries for the first time in history would clasp hands. To prevent this they dug a new gulf, which they hoped the English nation would not span. They sent a river of blood across the road of friendship and they flung two corpses to bar the newly opened gate of reconciliation and peace. They have succeeded. Into this world of political and social strife came the first whisper to me of the Theosophical Society in the shape of a statement of its principles, which conveyed, I remarked, no very definite idea of the requirements for membership beyond a dreamy, emotional, scholarly interest in the religio-philosophic fancies of the past. Also a report of an address by Colonel Olcott, which led me to suppose that the society held to some strange theory of apparitions of the dead, and to some existence outside the physical and apart from it. These came to me from some Hindu freethinkers who asked my opinion as to the secularists joining the Theosophical Society, and Theosophists being admitted into the National Secular Society. I replied, judging from these reports, that while secularists would have no right to refuse to enroll Theosophists if they desired it among their members, there is a radical difference between the mysticism of Theosophy and the scientific materialism of secularism. The exclusive devotion to this world implied in the profession of secularism leaves no room for other-worldism, and consistent members of our body cannot join a society which professes belief therein. H. P. Blavatsky penned a brief article in The Theosophist for August 1882, in which she commented on my paragraph, remarking in her generous way that it must have been written while laboring under entirely misconceived notions about the real nature of our society. For one so highly intellectual and keen as that renowned writer to dogmatize and issue autocratic ukases, after she has herself suffered so cruelly and undeservedly at the hands of blind bigotry and social prejudice in her lifelong struggle for freedom of thought, seems, to say the least, absurdly inconsistent. After quoting my paragraph, she went on, until proofs to the contrary, we prefer to believe that the above lines were dictated to Mrs. Besant by some crafty misrepresentations from Madras, inspired by a mean personal revenge rather than a desire to remain consistent with the principles of the scientific materialism of secularism. We beg to assure the radical editors of the National Reformer that they were both very strangely misled by false reports about the radical editors of The Theosophist. The term supernaturalists can no more apply to the latter than to Mrs. A. Besant and Mr. C. Bradlaugh. H. P. Blavatsky, when she commented, as she occasionally did, on the struggles going on in England, took of them a singularly large-hearted and generous view. She referred with much admiration to Mr. Bradlaugh's work and to his parliamentary struggle, and spoke warmly of the services he had rendered to liberty. 
again in pointing out that spiritualistic trance orations by no means transcended speeches that made no such claim, I find her first mention of myself. Another lady orator of deservedly great fame, both for eloquence and learning, the good Mrs. Annie Besant, without believing in controlling spirits, or for that matter in her own spirit, yet speaks and writes such sensible and wise things that we might almost say that one of her speeches or chapters contains more matter to benefit humanity than would equip a modern trance speaker for an entire oratorial career. I have sometimes wondered of late years whether, had I met her then or seen any of her writings, I should have become her pupil. I fear not. I was still too much dazzled by the triumphs of Western science, too self-assertive, too fond of combat, too much at the mercy of my own emotions, too sensitive to praise and blame. I needed to sound yet more deeply the depths of human misery, to hear yet more loudly the moaning of the great orphan humanity, to feel yet more keenly the lack of wider knowledge and of clearer light if I were to give effective help to man, ere I could bow my pride to crave admittance as pupil to the school of occultism, ere I could put aside my prejudices and study the science of the soul. The long-continued attempts of Sir Henry Tyler and his friends to stimulate persecutions for blasphemy at length took practical shape, and in July 1882 Mr. Foote, the editor, Mr. Ramsey, the publisher, and Mr. Whittle, the printer of The Free Thinker, were summoned for blasphemy by Sir Henry Tyler himself. An attempt was made to involve Mr. Bradlow in the proceedings, and the solicitors promised to drop the case against the editor and printer if Mr. Bradlow would himself sell them some copies of the paper. But however ready Mr. Bradlow had always shown himself to shield his subordinates by taking his sins on his own shoulders, he saw no reason why he should assume responsibility for a paper over which he had no control, and which was, he thought, by its caricatures, lowering the tone of free-thought advocacy and giving an unnecessary handle to its foes. He therefore answered that he would sell the solicitors any works published by himself or with his authority, and sent them a catalogue of the whole of such works. The object of this effort of Sir Henry Tyler's was obvious enough, and Mr. Bradlow commented, The above letters make it pretty clear that Sir Henry W. Tyler, having failed in his endeavor to get the science classes stopped at the Hall of Science, having also failed in his attempt to induce Sir W. Vernon Harcourt to prosecute myself and Mrs. Besant as editors and publishers of this journal, desires to make me personally and criminally responsible for the contents of a journal I neither edit nor publish, over which I have not a shadow of control, and in which I have not the smallest interest. Why does Sir H. W. Tyler so ardently desire to prosecute me for blasphemy? Is it because two convictions will under the ninth and tenth Will 3, Cap 32, render me forever incapable of sitting in Parliament? The Whitehall Review frankly put this forward as an object to be gained, and Mr. Bradlow was summoned to the Mansion House on a charge of publishing blasphemous libels in the Free Thinker. Meanwhile, Sir Henry Tyler put a notice on the order book to deprive the daughters of Mr. Charles Bradlow of the grant they had earned as science teachers, and got an order which proved to be invalid, but which was acted on, to inspect Mr. Bradlow's and my own private banking accounts, I being no party to the case. Looking back, I marvel at the incredible meannesses to which Sir Henry Tyler and others stooped in defense of religion. Heaven save the mark! Let me add that his motion in the House of Commons was a complete failure, and it was emphasized by the publication at the same time of the successful work, both as teachers and as students, 
of the daughters of Mr. Charles Bradlaugh, and of my being the only student in all England who had succeeded in taking honours in botany. I must pause a moment to chronicle in September 1882 the death of Dr. Pusey, whom I had sought in the whirl of my early religious struggles. I wrote an article on him in the National Reformer, and ended by laying a tribute on his grave. A strong man and a good man, utterly out of harmony with the spirit of his own time, looking with sternly rebuking eyes on all the eager research, the joyous love of nature, the earnest inquiry into a world doomed to be burnt up at the coming of its judge. An ascetic, pure in life, stern in faith, harsh to unbelievers because sincere in his own cruel creed, generous and tender to all who accepted his doctrines and submitted to his church. He never stooped to slander those with whom he disagreed. His hatred of heresy led him not to blacken the character of heretics, nor to descend to the vulgar abuse used by pettier priests. And therefore I, who honor courage and sincerity wherever I find them, I, who do homage to steadfastness wherever I find it, I, atheist, lay my small tribute of respect on the bier of this noblest of the Anglo-Catholics, Edward Bouverie Pusey. As a practical answer to the numberless attacks made on us, and as a result of the enormous increase of circulation given to our theological and political writings by these harassing persecutions, we moved our publishing business to 63 Fleet Street at the end of September 1882, a shop facing that at which Richard Carlyle had carried on his publishing business for a great time, and so seemed still redolent with memories of his gallant struggles. Two of the first things sold here were a pamphlet of mine, a strong protest against our shameful Egyptian policy, and a critical volume on Genesis, which Mr. Bradlow found time to write in the intervals of his busy life. Here I worked daily, save when out of London, until Mr. Bradlow's death in 1891, assisted in the conduct of the business by Mr. Bradlow's elder daughter, a woman of strong character with many noble qualities, who died rather suddenly in December 1888, and in the work on the National Reformer, first by Dr. Aveling and then by Mr. John Robertson, its present editor. Here, too, from 1884 onwards, worked with me Thornton Smith, one of Mr. Bradlow's most devoted disciples, who became one of the leading speakers of the National Secular Society. Like her well-loved chief, she was ever a good friend and a good fighter, and to me the most loyal and loving of colleagues, one of the few, the very few, freethinkers who were large-hearted and generous enough not to turn against me when I became a theosophist. A second of these, alas, I could count them on my fingers, was the John Robertson above mentioned, a man of rare ability and wide culture, somewhat too scholarly for popular propagandism of the most generally effective order, but a man who was a strength to any movement, always on the side of noble living and high thinking, loyal-natured as the true Scot should be, incapable of meanness or treachery, and the most genial and generous of friends. Among the new literary ventures that followed on our taking the large publishing premises in Fleet Street was a sixpenny magazine, edited by myself and entitled Our Corner. Its first number was dated January 1883, and for six years it appeared regularly, and served me as a useful mouthpiece in my socialist and labor propagandist work. Among its contributors were Moncure D. Conway, Professor Ludwig Buchner, Yves Gayot, Professor Ernst Haeckel, G. Bernard Shaw, Constance Snaden, Dr. Aveling, J. H. Levy, J. L. Joynes, Mrs. Edgren, John Robertson, and many another, Charles Bradlow and I writing regularly each month. 
1883 broke stormily, fights on every hand, and a huge constitutional agitation going on in the country, which forced the government into bringing in an affirmation bill, resolutions from liberal associations all over the land, preparations to oppose the re-election of disloyal members, no less than a thousand delegates sent up to London by clubs, trade unions, associations of every sort, a meeting that packed Trafalgar Square, an uneasy crowd in Westminster Hall, a request from Inspector Denning that Mr. Bradlow would go out to them. They feared for his safety inside. A word from him, the government have pledged themselves to bring in an affirmation bill at once. Roar after roar of cheering. A veritable people's victory on that 15th of February, 1883. It was the answer of the country to the appeal for justice, the rebuke of the electors to the house that had defied them. Scarcely was this over when a second prosecution for blasphemy against Messrs. Foote, Ramsey, and Kemp began, and was hurried on in the central criminal court before Mr. Justice North, a bigot of the sternest type. The trial ended in a disagreement with the jury, Mr. Foote defending himself in a splendid speech. The judge acted very harshly throughout, interrupted Mr. Foote continuously, and even refused bail to the defendants during the interval between the first and second trial. They were, therefore, confined in Newgate from Thursday to Monday, and we were only allowed to see them through iron bars and lattice, as they exercised in the prison yard between 8.30 and 9.30 a.m. Brought up to trial again on Monday, they were convicted, and Mr. Foote was sentenced to a year's imprisonment, Mr. Ramsey to nine months, and Mr. Kemp to three months. Mr. Foote especially behaved with great dignity and courage in a most difficult position, and heard his cruel sentence without wincing, and with the calm words, My Lord, I thank you. It is worthy your creed. A few of us at once stepped in to preserve to Mr. Ramsey his shop and to Mr. Foote his literary property. Dr. Aveling undertook the editing of the Free Thinker and of Mr. Foote's magazine, Progress, the immediate necessities of their families were seen to. Mr. and Mrs. Forder took charge of the shop, and within a few days all was in working order. Disapproving, as many of us did, of the policy of the paper, there was no time to think of that when a blasphemy prosecution had proved successful, and we all closed up in the support of men imprisoned for conscience's sake. I commenced a series of articles on the Christian creed, what it is blasphemy to deny, showing what Christians must believe under peril of prosecution. Everywhere a tremendous impulse was given to the free-thought movement, as men awakened to the knowledge that blasphemy laws were not obsolete. From over the sea came a word of sympathy from the pen of H. P. Blavatsky in The Theosophist. We prefer Mr. Foote's actual position to that of his severe judge. I, and were we in his guilty skin, we would feel more proud, even in the poor editor's present position, than we would under the wig of Mr. Justice North. In April 1883, the long legal struggles of Mr. Bradlow against Mr. Newdigate and his common informer, that had lasted from July 2, 1880, till April 9, 1883, ended in his complete victory by the judgment of the House of Lords in his favor. Court after court decided against me, he wrote, and Whig and Tory journals alike mocked at me for my persistent resistance. Even some good friends thought that my fight was hopeless, and that the bigots held me fast in their toils. I have, however, at last shaken myself free of Mr. Newdigate and his common informer. The judgment of the House of Lords in my favor is final and conclusive, and the boasts of the Tories that I should be made bankrupt for the penalties have now forever come to naught. 
yet but for the many poor folk who have stood by me with their help and sympathy i should have long since been ruined the days and weeks spent in the law courts the harassing work connected with each stage of litigation the watching daily when each hearing was imminent the absolute hindrance of all provincial lecturing it is hardly possible for anyone to judge the terrible mental and pecuniary strain of all this long drawn-out struggle ay it killed him at last twenty years before his time sapping his splendid vitality undermining his iron constitution the blasphemy trial of mr bradlaugh mr foote and mr ramsay now came on but this time in the queen's bench before the lord chief justice coleridge i had the honour of sitting between mr bradlaugh and mr foote charged with the duty of having ready for the former all his references and with a duplicate brief to mark off point after point as he dealt with it messrs foote and ramsay were brought up in custody but were brave and bright with courage unbroken mr bradlaugh applied to have his case taken separately as he denied responsibility for the paper and the judge granted the application it was clearly proved that he and i the free thought publishing company had never had anything to do with the production of the paper that until november eighteen eighty one we published it and then refused to publish it any longer that the reason for the refusal was the addition of comic bible illustrations as a feature of the paper i was called as a witness and began with a difficulty claiming to affirm i was asked by the judge if the oath would not be binding on my conscience i answered that any promise was binding on me whatever the form and after some little argument the judge found a way out of the insulting form by asking whether the invocation of the deity added anything to it of a binding nature added any sanction none my lord was the prompt reply and i was allowed to affirm sir harding gifford subjected me to a very stringent cross-examination doing his best to entangle me but the perfect frankness of my answers broke all his weapons of finesse and innuendo some of the incidents of the trial were curious sir harding gifford's opening speech was very able and very unscrupulous all facts in mr bradlaugh's favour were distorted or hidden anything that could be used against him was tricked out in most seductive fashion among the many monstrous perversions of the truth made by this most pious counsel was the statement that changes of publisher and of registration of the free thinker were made in consequence of a question as to prosecuting it put in the house of commons the change of publisher was admittedly made in november the registration was made for the first time in november and could not be changed as there was no previous one the house of commons was not sitting in november the question alluded to was asked in the following february this one deliberate lie of the defender of the faith will do as well as quoting a score of others to show how wickedly and maliciously he endeavoured to secure an unjust verdict the speech over a number of witnesses were called sir harding did not call witnesses who knew the facts such as mr norrish the shopman or mr whittle the printer these he carefully avoided although he subpoenaed both because he did not want the real facts to come out but he put in two solicitors clerks who had been hanging about the premises and buying endless national reformers and freethinkers sheaves of them which were never used but by which sir harding hoped to convey the impression of a mass of criminality he put in a gentleman from the british museum who produced two large books presumed to be national reformers and freethinkers what they were brought for nobody understood the counsel of the crown as little as any one and the judge surveying them over his spectacles treated them with supreme contempt as utterly irrelevant then a man came to prove that mr bradlaugh was rated for stonecutter street a fact no one disputed 
Two policemen came to say that they had seen him go in. "'You saw many people go in, I suppose?' queried the Lord Chief Justice. "'On the whole, the most miserably weak and obviously malicious case that could be brought into a court of law. "'One witness, however, must not be forgotten. "'Mr. Woodham's bank manager. "'When he stated that Mr. Maloney, the junior counsel for the Crown, "'had inspected Mr. Bradlow's banking account, "'a murmur of surprise and indignation ran around the court. "'Oh, oh!' was heard from the crowd of barristers behind.' The judge looked down incredulously, and for a moment the examination was stopped by the general movement. Unless Sir Harding Gifford is a splendid actor, he was not aware of the infamous proceeding, for he looked as startled as the rest of his legal brethren. Another queer incident occurred, showing perhaps more than aught else, Mr. Bradlow's swift perception of the situation and adaptation to the environment. He wanted to read the Mansion House deposition of Norrish to show why he was not called. The judge objected and declined to allow it to be read. A pause while you might count five. Then, Well, I think I may say the learned counsel did not call Norrish because... And then the whole substance of the deposition was given in suppositious form. The judge looked down a minute, and then went off into silent laughter impossible to control at the adroit change of means and persistent gaining of end. Barristers all around broke into ripples of laughter unrestrained. A broad smile pervaded the jury-box. The only unmoved person was the defendant who proceeded in his grave statement as to what Norrish might have been asked. The nature of the defense was very clearly stated by Mr. Bradlow. I shall ask you to find that this prosecution is one of the steps in a vindictive attempt to oppress and to crush a political opponent, that it was a struggle that commenced on my return to Parliament in 1880. If the prosecutor had gone into the box, I should have shown you that he was one of the first then in the house to use the suggestion of blasphemy against me there. Since then I have never had any peace until the Monday of this week. Writs for penalties have been served, and suits of all kinds have been taken against me. On Monday last the House of Lords cleared me from the whole of one set, and, gentlemen, I ask you today to clear me from another. Three times I have been re-elected by my constituents, and what Sir Henry Tyler asks you to do is to send me to them branded with the dishonor of a conviction, branded not with a conviction for publishing heresy, but branded with a conviction, dishonorable to me, of having lied in this matter. I have no desire to have a prison's walls closed on me, but I would sooner ten times that than that my constituents should think that for one moment I lied to escape the penalties. I am not indicted for anything I have ever written or caused to be written. As my lord at the very first stage this morning pointed out, it is no question with me. Are the matters indicted blasphemous, or are they not blasphemous? Are they defensible, or are they not defensible? That is not my duty here. On this I make no comment. I have no duty here of even discussing the policy of the blasphemy laws, although I cannot help thinking that, if I were here making my defense against them, I might say that they were bad laws unfairly revived, doing more mischief to those who revive them than to those whom they are revived against. But it is not for anything I have said myself. It is not for anything I have written myself. It is not for anything I have published myself. It is an endeavor to make me technically liable for a publication with which I have nothing whatever to do. And I will ask you to defeat that here. Every time I have succeeded I have been met with some new thing. When I first fought it was hoped to defeat my election. When I was re-elected, it was sought to make me bankrupt by enormous penalties. 
and when I escaped the suit for enormous penalties, they now hope to destroy me by this. I have no question here about defending my heresy, not because I am not ready to defend it when it is challenged in the right way, and if there be anything in it the law can challenge. I have never gone back from anything I have ever said. I have never gone back from anything I have ever written. I have never gone back from anything I have ever done. And I ask you not to allow this Sir Henry Watley Tyler, who dares not come here today, to use you as the assassin uses the dagger, to stab a man from behind whom he never dares to face. The summing up by Lord Coleridge was perfect in eloquence, in thought, in feeling. Nothing more touching could be imagined than the conflict between the real religious feeling, abhorrent of heresy, and the determination to be just, despite all prejudice. The earnest effort, lest the prejudice he felt as a Christian should weigh also in the minds of the jury, and should cause them to pervert justice. The absolute pleading to them to do what was right, and not to admit against the unbeliever what they would not admit in ordinary cases. Then the protest against prosecution of opinions, the admission of the difficulties in the Hebrew Scriptures, and the pathetic fear lest by persecution the sacred truths might be struck through the sides of those who are their enemies. For intellectual clearness and moral elevation, this exquisite piece of eloquence, delivered in a voice of silvery beauty, would be hard to excel. And Lord Coleridge did this piece of service to the religion so dear to his heart, that he showed that a Christian judge could be just and righteous in dealing with a foe of his creed. There was a time of terrible strain waiting for the verdict, and when at last it came, not guilty, a sharp clap of applause hailed it, sternly and rightly reproved by the judge. It was echoed by the country, which almost unanimously condemned the prosecution as an iniquitous attempt on the part of Mr. Bradlaugh's political enemies to put a stop to his political career. Thus the Pall Mall Gazette wrote, Whatever may be the personal or political or religious aversion which is excited by Mr. Bradlaugh, it is impossible for even his bitterest opponents to deny the brilliance of the series of victories which he has won in the law courts. His acquittal in the blasphemy prosecution of Saturday was but the latest of a number of encounters in which he has succeeded in turning the tables upon his opponents in the most decisive fashion. The policy of baiting Mr. Bradlaugh, which has been persisted in so long, savors so strongly of a petty and malignant species of persecution that it is well that those who indulge in it should be made to smart for their pains. The wise and weighty words used by the Lord Chief Justice in summing up should be taken seriously to heart. Those persons are to be deprecated who would pervert the law, even with the best intentions, and do evil that good may come whose damnation, says the Apostle, is just. Without emulating the severity of the Apostle, we may say that it is satisfactory that the promoters of all these prosecutions should be condemned in costs. In the separate trial of Messrs. Foote and Ramsey, Mr. Foote again defended himself in a speech of marked ability, and spoken of by the judge as very striking. Lord Coleridge made a noble charge to the jury, in which he strongly condemned prosecutions of unpopular opinions, pointing out that no prosecution short of extermination could be effective, and caustically remarking on the very easy form of virtue indulged in by persecutors. As a general rule, he said, Persecution, unless far more extreme than in England in the nineteenth century is possible, is certain to be in vain. It is also true, and I cannot help assenting to it, that it is a very easy form of virtue. It is a more difficult form of virtue, 
quietly and unostentatiously to obey what we believe to be God's will in our own lives. It is not very easy to do it, and it makes much less noise in the world. It is very easy to turn upon somebody else who differs from us, and in the guise of zeal of God's honor to attack somebody of a difference of opinion, whose life may be more pleasing to God and more conducive to his honor than our own. And when it is done by persons whose own lives are not free from reproach and who take that particular form of zeal for God, which consists in putting the criminal law in force against others, that, no doubt, does more to create a sympathy with the defendant than with the prosecutor. And if it should be done by those who enjoy the wit of Voltaire and who do not turn away from the sneers of Gibbon and rather relish the irony of Hume, our feelings do not go with the prosecutors, and we are rather disposed to sympathize with the defendant. And it is still worse if the person who takes such a course takes it, not from a kind of notion that God wants his assistance, and that he can give it less on his own account than by prosecuting others, but it is mixed up with anything of partisan or political feeling, then nothing can be more foreign to what is high-minded or religious or noble in men's conduct. And indeed it seems to me that anyone who will do that not for the honor of God, but for the purpose of the ban, deserves the most disdainful disapprobation. The jury disagreed, and a null prosequi was entered. The net results of the trials were a large addition to the membership of the National Secular Society, an increase of circulation of free-thought literature, the raising of Mr. Foote for a time to a position of great influence and popularity, and the placing of his name in history as a brave martyr for liberty of speech. The offense against good taste will be forgotten. The loyalty to conviction and to courage will remain. History does not ask if men who suffered for heresy ever published a rough word. It asks, were they brave in their steadfastness? Were they faithful to the truth they saw? It may be well to place on record Mr. Foote's punishment for blasphemy. He spent twenty-two hours out of the twenty-four alone in his cell, his only seat was a stool without a back. His employment was picking matting. His bed was a plank with a thin mattress. During the latter part of his imprisonment he was allowed some books. End of chapter 12